Hello, and welcome to The Great Collide, where we explore the intersection between politics and faith. I'm Jasmine Taylor. And I'm Leanne Noland. Gun violence seems to be out of control in America. Only a few days into January, we've already suffered the first mass shooting of the year, this time at an Iowa school. And in Chicago, there were over 2,400 shootings in 2023. Wow. Well, Leanne, our guest today is Reverend Sierra Bates-Chamberlain, Executive Director of Live Free Illinois, which mobilizes Black churches to address gun violence and enact criminal justice reform. She's here to talk about how churches can make a real difference in transforming communities and improving public safety. So Reverend Sierra, how did Live Free Illinois get its start? I had an interest in organizing Black churches around the issues of gun violence and police violence. Um, prior to starting Live Free, I worked as a congregational organizer on the south side of Chicago, working primarily on the issue of police violence. Um, and so one unique thing that I that I realized is that you have to work at the intersection of criminal justice reform and public safety because you couldn't use gun violence without addressing the carceral system um, and vice versa. So that that was the the reason why we birthed uh, Leah Free Illinois here, because there was um, a model um, that. I was interested uh, in being able to build out, which is Live Free USA um, in their model. And so Live Free USA organizes at the intersection of criminal justice reform and public safety while deeply investing in the, um, in the development of Black churches being able to organize and build political power. So Reverend Sierra, I want you to tell me what the goals are for Live Free. Our goals are to end gun violence and uh, to end police violence uh, and to re significantly reduce um, the prisons um, and to impact the ways in which people who are the, the ways in which people who are directly impacted by the carceral system. Um, to transform their lives. Um, and we know that the statues that exist on the books right now, even after people serve their time, people are still serving the sec second sentence. So we're working to end permanent punishment. So again, we're looking to uh, end gun violence, police violence, mass incarceration, and to uh, end permanent punishments. So your goals of, of reducing gun violence, ending mass incarceration, that could to some seem contradictory to those who, who believe that stopping gun violence could mean putting more people in prison. How, how would you respond to that? We don't believe that you can police uh, your way out of this situation or our way out of this situation, and neither can we use the carcer system as a means um, to end gun violent in our neighborhoods. In fact, we believe that by using those systems that it only strengthens um, the violence that's happening in community because when you use violent tools to end violence, it only produces more violence. Um, and so while I do understand that in the current system that we're in, there may be some people um, in this present time, once they are um, if they're being held accountable, the current accountability system is um, to imprison someone. 
However, we do understand that, that before we even get to the point of imprisonment, there are so many services and needs that communities uh, need in the moment. Um, and the, and we believe in hurt people that hurt people hurt people. Most of the people, um, in for example, in in our areas that are drivers of the violence are from within our communities. But it's not because young black men and women um, are violent people. It's because they are hurt people. Um, and what has to, we believe that if we begin to promote healing cultures of healing systems of healing. Um, that that is how we reduce violence and not by using the carceral system or weaponizing the carceral system or weaponizing uh, the policing system against communities of color. Um, so there is a way, again, through creating healing processes of healing, systems of healing, that we can reduce gun violence. Why is it important to get the church and in particular the Black church involved in these issues? I so invested in the black church one because I come I grew up in a black church. Um, I I grew up uh, at Liberty Baptist Church on 49th and King Drive in Chicago, and then later on I had an experience at a Seven Day Apostolic Church. I'm uh, currently uh, a member, and so um, I believe in the 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 healing principles. I believe in the culture. Um, of the Black church. The Black church has always been a pillar in the community. Before there were funded nonprofits and when they're, if they're not funded nonprofits in Black communities, the Black church will always uh, be a safe haven for our communities. Um, and so with that being said, the Black church is in our nature um, to be a place, like I said, of healing and being able to cultivate those healing uh, culture, that healing culture within community and systems. Um, it is the Black church's, in my opinion, role and responsibility to be those prophetic voices um, that can speak out against those systems that are weaponized against Black and brown communities. Um, and again, those are, despite what many people say, there are many folks in the Black community who look for um, the, the voice and the aid of Black churches when crisis arrives. So the Black church is just all up in the mix when we think about healing um, and the prophetic, um, just the, the, the prophetic need that we have in community in these desperate times. And so when we've talked about violence, talked about guns, but you also point to structural and economic violence as well. So what what are those and, and how are how are they all connected? Along the way, we hear a lot of stories on how people have been impacted by systems, but they're a lot of the times they're the same you few different situations, but I mean, the situations you know, it may differ a bit, but the, the storyline of the theme is pretty much the same. And it looks like someone, a, a, a young Black person um, in a low-income neighborhood, predominantly Black low-income neighborhood, who grows up um, in an area where there's, you know, huge divestment, where there are poor education systems where there's over-policing, where people feel over-policed and underprotected, um, where the the activities are minimum, um, 
and just the services that many other thriving communities have, um, they don't exist in many of our low-income Black communities. And what tends to happen is, is that you have children who, who people may observe in school um, that are experiencing some issues or are crying out for help, whether it is that they may have a, a their parents may not be active in their lives um, in the way that they need them to be, or their parents are struggling themselves to make ends meet. Uh, but whatever the case, you have this child who may have behavior issues and there's no social worker at school, behavior issues, and there's no counseling support. Um, and so this child go through the years and when they're 10 crying out for help, you know, they're just there and it's the poor child. But once that kid turns 17 or 18 years old in the way that their behavior begins to be disruptive in community, now it's time to lock that out. I talk because what tends to happen is, is because we have so many children who are basically the victims of. Um, not having um, thriving communities or children who are the victims of structural and systemic racism. And then we see the behaviors and because they don't have any, the same supports that we see in other communities, once they become an adult, we're not saying that that's the child that didn't get the resources. We're saying that's the adult that needs to lock away. And I think I told that story because I think that's the example of when we say, well, there is social and economic um, injustices in community. Like that is how it plays out in community, because the child never receives the resources and support from their community. Uh, and then it's until the adult that everybody wants to throw away. Yeah. So you, you talk about that. You talk about thriving communities. Right. So tell me what what a thriving or healthy community. What does that look like? A thriving and a healthy community and a space that I would love for my children to have the opportunity uh, to reside in, I think is two things. I think as a people, we create communities. Um, so definitely a thriving and a healthy community is what we create as a people, the, the people and our loved ones and the, the church and just the system that we're able to create ourselves. I believe that that's community. But in the community, you know, as as a whole, I think that a thriving community looks like a, a child having access to um, an education system that's actually invested in them. Um, and and I know that may seem simple, but there are still many school systems, including the school system that my children attend, where the children are treated more like they're in the or in the juvenile system more than they're treated as students. Um, so again, uh, having an education system that's actually invested in the development of children, having a healthy and thriving community means that like people are not living in a community to where they're used to hearing sirens and gunshots and, um, whether it's police and ambulance. I've had the opportunity to live in the South and it's interesting on just how the, 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 the difference um, in some neighborhoods, just like a, a different level of peace that you have versus when you're living in some communities to where, again, your children uh, understand or your child, you're a three or five year old know what a gunshot sounds like. Um, that's, that just should not be 
a thriving community again has the resources um in communities for and activities for children it has activities and resources for adults things such as being able to go to a shopping mall where you're not concerned about a shootout um or breaking out like those being in a, a neighborhood to where you're able to be free and that you're able uh to grow and thrive as an individual and as a collective live free wow as long as chicago is a washing guns can the work that you're doing make a difference so we're doing a few um things and i think it's one thing that we we have to do is start somewhere in chicago is full of guns uh, but i think the major piece is is that it's full of people with potential it's full of people who have the opportunity to operate as healed people. And what I do believe is that while we're addressing systems and structures um, so that we can uh, uh, hopefully eventually get to a space to where guns aren't just flooding our communities, but more importantly, that we can have an impact on people um, so that guns will just be laying on the ground versus in the hands of angry and hurt people. So I do think the work that we, that we're doing at Live Free, again, is is you know I we work on policy uh, to address manufacturing. We work on policy that can hopefully reduce um, the amount of guns that are in our communities. Um, and so we've been a part of many of those policy fights. But again, I think the most important thing that we can do. Um, is ensure that people aren't picking up the guns to harm each other. Now, in Southern Illinois, downstate Illinois, some folks see gun violence, structural economic violence, as more of a Chicago problem, that maybe they aren't as um, in the thick of it as Chicago residents. How do you get the rest of the state of Illinois on, on board with, with your work? You know, it's interesting that some of those arguments may happen or people consider that as the Chicago thing. I think that's a narrative. Anywhere we go, we just have to, we have to bust that myth because whether we're in Illinois or if we're in another part of the country, wherever there are low income uh, Black communities, like we see the same thing. Um, we see violence, we see neglect, we see racism, we see poverty. And so gun violence, the root cause of gun violence, as we would say, is racism and poverty. So where you see that, you're going to see violence, you're going to see gun violence. And so um, I think that when we get other portions of the state, the, there's data. and There was a whole, like in Illinois, the, the, the whole reimagined public safety plan wasn't just for Chicago. It was for cities across the state that were experiencing high rates of violence. And in fact, there are some cities that are across the state that experience high rate, higher rates of gun violence. Chicago just has a higher population, so their volumes may be higher, while the other cities may have higher percentages, like such a city such as East St. Louis, who has a higher rate of gun violence than Chicago has. But Chicago typically catches the attention of the news and of the country because of the volumes of the homicides. But people are feeling the violence, whether you're in Rockford, whether you're in East St. Louis, Champaign, like people are 
homeless violence reduction work across the city, not because it's a fun thing to do, but because it's needed. Mm. Very good point. Yes. So you are doing such great work. How how do you measure success with all of this? What 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 is your measurement to say, yes, we've succeeded? You know, that's a hard question because um, the reason one of the 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 sub reasons on starting Lear Free is that I never wanted to be us to be the organization that was just super excited because we had a policy win, but went back to our community and we couldn't see any tangible changes. Um, so right now, to me, success is when we can feel the the relief um, in our neighborhoods, when we can feel the relief and once a person returns home um, from prison, that they can feel the relief that they can reenter into society um as a as a person with dignity and not as a person that's doing their time again when we can feel the relief that when we go outside that people aren't their heads aren't on the swivel because they're uh fearful of the violence that may happen when they walk out the door depending on what neighborhood they're in like when our community members can feel the relief I I would say that that's success I'm not necessarily and the celebrates because we say, oh yeah, we got a 5% reduction. I'm more of the person, I want to know that people can say, I feel safe in my community. And then not only do I feel safe, but I also feel healed in my community. That's when I'll celebrate success. But right now I'm probably the one that's walking around. (laughs) Like we need some wins in our community and and we need to hit those success marks. And that's why we work so hard so that our communities can feel that relief. So Reverend Sierra, you mentioned healing communities. Are there any resources for healing communities or or, or how do people go about healing community? Yes, ma'am. In addition to our policy work that we're doing on uh, our public safety that we're doing around clearance rates, um, on gun policy and our decarceration work, uh, we recently launched a community healing resource center network uh, this network uh, consists of 13 partners uh, across the state of Illinois. Um, and we have a model to where we are working, making sure that people have resources right in community. Um, oftentimes, people have to go outside the community to receive support. Or we still have this myth within community to where we we don't want to receive counseling or therapeutic services. And so our goal is to educate people around being trauma-informed, educate people on what toxic stress is. So not only are we educating the churches, but we're going out into community um, and engaging people into services. And again, they don't have to go outside of their neighborhood, but they're able to receive culturally competent services right from people in their community. And we also work with the a clinical group called Grow Community, um, in which our people, our community folks, we're able to receive culturally competent mental health services as well. Um, so we're partnered with the congregations in, in the areas. People know that those are community healing resource centers that are right there in their community. And this way, the healing is coming from within. And so we're super excited about this network. You can go to our website and find out how you can connect to our community healing resource centers. 
people who align with with what you're doing or who want to kind of get involved or kind of help all of us to live free how do they they support you or back you or become involved or how do we how do we get this community of healing and heal you can uh, connect with us on social media um, you can go to our website and you can pick in which ways you want to connect. If you want to connect your ministry, uh, you can sign up your ministry on the website and we will have an organizer reach out to you. If you want to learn more about the Community Healing Resource Center Network, our program director is Pastor Robert Beekman. He's also on our website. He'll be happy to have a conversation with you uh, to, and to help you you uh, decide how you want your congregation um, to be engaged. If you, you as an individual, if you want to organize, if you want to support, if you want to show up, there are many ways we still have to advocate. So not only are we advocating um, for the healing in our community, there still is a lot of organizing work that has to happen because we have to ensure that there is funding for these type of services. We have to ensure that we're arguing for a healing approach and not a carceral approach. Uh, there's so much work that needs to be done. So yes, we need you um, to support us in many ways. So please reach out on, uh, reach out to us on our website or through social media, and we're happy um, to build and organize collectively to transform our communities. Well, thank you, Reverend Sierra, for sharing Live Free Illinois, for sharing the ministry work and the, just the great work that, that you are doing across the state. So be sure to download all of our Great Collide episodes, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review, and most importantly, tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all the links. The Great Collide is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago, in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm Leanne Noland. And I'm Jasmine Taylor. Keep, Keep the faith. faith.